Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 357 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Translunar Injection, Transposition, and the Limb Fuel Leak? Recall from the previous episode, just under an hour into the flight of Apollo 16, Capcom Gordon Fullerton informed the crew of a possible problem. Uh, we're evaluating a need for a possible uh, IU nav update, and also uh, we're seeing some pressure, overpressure in EPS module number two. Uh, we'll give you a full story on that over honeysuckle. Apollo Control Houston, uh, the reg pressure referred to there was on one of the uh, attitude uh, control engines. Uh, uh, readings here on the ground indicate it's about 100 uh, PSI above the normal. Apparently, the APS Module 2 primary regulator had failed, and the backup wasn't working properly. This meant if they did lose all of the system's helium, Young was going to have to control the S-4B's inertial reference system manually for a full five-and-a-half-minute translunar injection burn in order to keep them on the correct lunar path. Of course, Young had done this many times in the simulator, but he was not exactly looking forward to handling such extensive manual control. This would be a real test of Young and his crew. The astronauts would find out if manual control was necessary in 42 minutes. In the meantime, the crew prepared for the manual procedure. Finally, at T plus one hour, 43 minutes, Capcom came back with the answer. Okay, you got it? Okay, and words on the apps module. It appears to be uh, operating... uh not completely normally, but adequately, that we predicted it'll be good uh, through TLI and TD&E with no change in procedure. Over. Outstanding prediction. It's Apollo Control Houston, uh, one hour, uh, 44 minutes uh, ground elapsed time. Uh, you heard that uh, prediction on the uh, apps, and you heard the crew's response, uh, the prediction being that uh, we could go through uh, TLI, TLI and transposition and docking with uh, no change in procedures. The individual uh, responding with the outstanding was uh, spacecraft commander John Young. 
We also received a uh, TLI pad, and let me sort those numbers out for you rather quickly. Uh, our time of ignition uh, for a translunar uh, injection burn is 2 hours uh, 33 minutes, uh, 34.6 seconds ground elapsed time uh, with a burn duration of uh, 5 minutes 43 seconds. Uh, we predict a velocity at cutoff of uh, 35,589 feet per second. Fortunately, all the helium had not leaked out, and they would be able to make the TLI burn on automatic. The mission could continue as normal. It's Apollo Control, Houston. Uh, one hour, uh, 55 minutes ground elapsed time. Uh, we've uh, had loss of signal with Apollo 16 over Canary. The uh, next ground station to acquire uh, will be Carnarvon at uh, approximately 2 hours, 25 minutes ground elapsed time. However, uh, we should pick up the Apollo 16 uh, spacecraft shortly in advance of that time with one of the Araya aircraft, uh, which will be on station as Apollo 16 uh, now proceeds uh, toward the time of ignition uh, for the uh, translunar injection burn. Our clock in mission control presently shows that burn time some 38 minutes away. At uh, one hour... Uh, 56 minutes ground elapsed time. Uh, this is Apollo Control, Houston. Capcom had already sent up the abort information, which would only be necessary if TLI was not exactly according to schedule or if the crew had some emergency in the spacecraft, either during or immediately after the burn. Now, with the crew out of radio contact with the Earth for about 30 minutes, they strapped into their couches in preparation for this major maneuver. Flight procedures required that for the astronauts' protection during the burn, they put their helmets and gloves back on, the idea being that if the S-4B exploded, they might benefit from some protection inside their sealed pressure suits. The crew really didn't believe that their suits would help much in such a case. When ignited, the third stage Saturn 4B with its J2 engine would produce 100,000 pounds of thrust. The crew was carefully monitoring everything in preparation for the burn, eager for it to begin. About 10 minutes before the burn, Houston contacted Apollo 16 through the Araya. Araya was airborne over the South Pacific to help with communications in case of an emergency. Usually this communications link was sketchy, but today it was great. Apollo 16, this is Houston through Araya. All right, guys, loud and clear there. Hey, so are you, John. How's everything on board? Everything looks good here. We're, a minute, we're 10 minutes and uh, 30 seconds to the burn. All right. Shortly before the burn, the crew felt the maneuvering jets fire on the third stage. The vehicle was maneuvering to its proper attitude for the ignition sequence. Thump, thump, every time the jets fired. 
They heard a muffled thump and then felt a shake in the entire spacecraft. Finally, the spacecraft shook itself into the correct position for the burn. Tension grew among the crew as they waited for this major phase of the mission. The spacecraft had performed well up to this point. They had experienced no serious problems. Everyone watched the clock countdown as they anticipated a smooth ride out of Earth orbit. The engine start command was sent at 2.33 ground elapsed time. The restart sequence was essentially identical to the start of the S2 stages, J2s, and the first start of the S4Bs, J2. The main difference was that the fuel was allowed to run through the engine walls for 8 seconds before the final ignition. Then, right on schedule, the J2 ignited, and that 100,000 pounds of thrust began to accelerate Apollo 16 toward the moon. They needed to gain 7,073 miles per hour in velocity in order to escape the Earth's gravitational pull. Booster uh, Systems Engineer reports ignition on the third stage. The thrust looks good, he says. 16, we're showing good thrust on the S-4B. Monitoring data from the instrument unit uh, shows a slow buildup in our velocity. Uh, velocity now reading at 26,147 feet per second. Booster reports a good stable burn. Mark, one minute uh, into the burn. Good. Roger, we're looking good here. Instrument unit data shows velocity now reading at 26,932 feet per second. We've seen PU shift. The thrust looks good. Displays and mission controls show uh, our trajectory right down the middle of the plot board. Looking good. Uh, coming up on two minutes. Mark uh, two minutes uh, since time of ignition. Houston at two minutes, uh, looking good. Roger. Right on in here. Roger. Two minutes, 30 seconds since time of ignition. Uh, velocity now reading uh, through the instrument unit, uh, 28,841 uh, feet per second. Three minutes uh, since time of ignition, a velocity now showing at 29,956 feet per second. Booster Systems Engineer uh, reports uh, the uh, burn performance uh, looks real good. Three minutes, 30 seconds since time of ignition, a velocity now reading uh, 30,852 feet per second. Mark, uh, four minutes uh, since time of ignition, the velocity now. Through Araya 3 now, burn time is as predicted, 5.43, everything looks good. Velocity, velocity now reading uh, 32,073 feet per second, uh, present uh, altitude uh, 119 nautical miles. Five minutes uh, since time of ignition, the velocity now 33,864 feet per second. Present altitude, uh, 143 nautical miles. 
10 seconds to go. Everything's still looking good. Uh, 35,132 feet per second velocity. Roger. Booster uh, reports uh, shut down on time. Guided cutoff. Roger, look like normal shutdown and a guided cutoff. Charlie Duke commented that the burn produced a very high-frequency vibration in the spacecraft, which was an unusual feeling. He questioned if there was a problem, but John Young, who had done this before, said everything was looking good. This is how Young described the burn in his book. Quote, As in the flight of Apollo 10, firing the S-4B for translunar injection at roughly two and a half hours into the flight brought with it some noticeable high-frequency vibrations. These were most pronounced during the second half of the firing. Mission Control could not directly observe the vibration levels that we were sensing, which were pretty doggone strong. There was a buzz on the S-4B all the way to engine cutoff, and it was a high-frequency buzz, too high a frequency and too low in amplitude to be characterized as pogo. It didn't seem that everything was in danger of coming apart. I was more worried about the engine quitting prematurely, when it didn't, we were pretty happy. According to the post-flight evaluation report, the burn time on the S-4B for TLI was 341.9 seconds, or 2.4 seconds less than predicted. Not bad, considering that the difference was primarily due to the slightly higher S-4B performance and lighter vehicle mass during what amounted to the engine's second burn. Having picked up our speed to a rate of 6 miles per second, faster than a rifle bullet, there was absolutely no doubt in our minds or in our bodies that we were on the way to the moon. End quote. As Apollo 16 climbed away from the Earth, they were still in darkness, but swiftly approaching sunrise. Houston, this is the most spectacular view in the, you could possibly imagine. Uh, 16 Houston through Hawaii, over. Roger, Gordy, you're five by, and this is the most spectacular view I've ever seen. Roger, Charlie, you're loud and clear. This is Duke's description of the sunrise after TLI from his book. Quote, Sunrises in space are always spectacular. It doesn't remind you of a regular sunrise as there are no clouds for the rays of the sun to illuminate. First, the horizon begins to light up. There are blues and reds and hues of white all along the horizon as the sun's rays are diffused throughout the Earth's atmosphere. Even though the atmosphere is about 12 miles deep, it appears as a thin strip from our perspective. Above that strip is the blackness of space, and right below is the earth in darkness. For a few seconds, the sun's rays appear to diffuse. End quote. We're at uh, two 
hours, uh, 58 minutes ground elapsed time. Flight Director Gene Kranz is uh, taking a check with his flight control team for a go-no-go -no -go for uh, transposition, uh, docking, and ejection of the uh, lunar module. The next phase of the mission was busier for Ken than it was for Charlie or John. As the command module pilot, it was Ken's job, with a little help from his crewmates, to separate Casper from the S-4B and turn the command and service module around. The plan was to separate and make a 180-degree pitch maneuver so that the crew in the command module would be facing nose-to-nose -nose with the S-4B. At that point, they would then be able to see the extremely fragile pressure shell of the body of the lunar module that had flown up to this point tightly secured inside a strong box-like container atop the S-4B. It was a critical maneuver in the flight plan because if the separation and docking didn't work, Apollo 16 would be forced to return to Earth. In the acts of this transpositioning, there was also the possibility of an in-space collision and the subsequent depressurization of the spacecraft, so the crew was required to remain in their pressurized spacesuits during the maneuver. The onboard computer set in motion a sequence that would bring about the separation. The astronauts could once again feel a thump each time the small attitude control engines fired to maneuver them into the proper attitude. Once in their new attitude, Houston gave clearance to separate from the launch vehicle. 16 Houston, the uh, booster is in attitude and stable. You have a go for T and D. Roger. We'll give you a call just before we get off. Okay. Then Ken fired the explosive bolts, releasing them from the S-4B and allowing access to the lunar module in its garage atop the rocket. Although separation of the command and service module from the spacecraft lunar adapter was a fast procedure, it was still a complex event. A train of explosive cords severed electrical connections between the service module and the S-4B. They cut the metal structure from the service module to the spacecraft lunar adapter to allow the spacecraft to come free. They cut the upper 75% of the conical spacecraft lunar adapter into four long sections, which were now only joined to the S-4B by spring-loaded partial hinges at the center of their lower edge. They set all pyrotechnic thrusters mounted within the intact portion of the spacecraft lunar adapter, which forced pistons to push on the outside edge of each spacecraft lunar adapter panel, causing them to begin rotating away from the enclosed lunar module. Once the panels had rotated about 45 degrees from the center line of the launch vehicle, the hinges disengaged, allowing the springs within the hinge assembly to push the panels 
away at about 2.5 meters per second, leaving the lunar module exposed on top of the Saturn's third stage. Since the crew was now free from the third stage, they began to move a safe distance away so they could start the pitch maneuver. Ken controlled small thrusters that moved the command and service module out at about 50 or 60 feet. Then he stopped and began pitch over. The spacecraft were so perfectly oriented that Ken's optical alignment fell directly onto the Orion's docking target. Charlie had been glued to the window during the whole process, but now there were things to be done. So John called him back to work in order not to fall behind the timeline for the docking and extraction maneuver of the lunar module. In fact, everyone returned to their couches. Looking through his front window, Charlie could see something strange around the lunar module. What is that? he exclaimed. They had just set up the TV camera, and he placed it in the window to let Houston take a look at what they were seeing. I got a picture now, Charlie, and it looks real good. Man, it just looks like a picture book from up here, Gordo. We must have a zillion particles along with us. As you always see the particles, and uh, a great picture. What appeared to be droplets of fluid were escaping from the upper part of the lunar module and floating away into space. As they came out of the shadow of the spacecraft, they hit the sunlight and sparkled like little diamonds. It looked like they had a leak from one of the propellant tanks on the limb. If so, that meant abort. It was Charlie's greatest fear that they were not going to be able to land on the moon. It looked like the mission was in deep trouble because the particles were coming from the area of the ascent stage fuel tank. If that was leaking, then there was no possibility they could make a landing. Houston was watching on television, but since the resolution of the TV wasn't very sharp, they couldn't tell exactly what it was or where it was coming from any better than the crew could. Houston advised them to dock, extract the lunar module from its storage position, and then they would make a decision. Ken deftly maneuvered the spacecraft into the docking attitude, and they moved toward the lunar module. Uh, put out now, Houston. Roger, looks like a real smooth join-up. The command module made contact with the lunar module at somewhere between 0.1 and 1 foot per second velocity, 
which seemed like quite a jolt to Charlie. The docking arrangement utilized a probe and drogue, a male-female joining system. The probe was on the command module and the drogue was on the lunar module. A series of latches were cocked open on the drogue and when the two sections made contact, these latches automatically closed, locking the spacecraft together. The 12 latches around the docking mechanism clicked into place and they had the lunar module secured. But before they could extract the lunar module, they had to hook up the electrical connectors and do some other preliminary work in the docking tunnel. This tunnel, 30 inches in diameter, was their passageway into the lunar module once the docking mechanism was removed. Ken was trained for this, and while he was working, Charlie floated over to look at the Earth as it was receding. And out the window he saw the crescent moon, their first view of the moon from space. After Ken made the necessary connections, it was time to remove the lunar module. To do this, the lunar module had to be released from its mounting points, and the command service module slash lunar module stack had to be backed away from the S-4B. Then, all that remained was to slingshot the S-4B out of the way. John fired the explosive bolts that held the lunar module to the S-4B as Ken pulsed the maneuvering jets on the service module and the two spacecraft slowly began to move away from the third stage. This maneuver was like pulling a vehicle out of the garage. Firing the jets was similar to stepping on the accelerator while in reverse gear. Houston, uh, Casper is out of his bag. And uh, we got the S4B in the window. And the TV is transmitting uh, pictures of it now. And uh, if you want to do your maneuver with it, uh, we're well clear. Okay, uh, we copy a go for the S4B uh, maneuver. That's the attitude maneuver we're talking about. He'll uh, start the maneuver about 410 GET. As they drifted away from the third stage, Mission Control sent a command that initiated an S-4B attitude maneuver to give the command and service module ample separation. The plan was for both vehicles to continue traveling toward the moon on slightly different paths. And then, three days later, the crew's spacecraft would enter lunar orbit while the S-4B would crash into the front side of the moon. Knowing the energy of this impact, the scientists could use it to calibrate the seismic instruments and help understand the moon's interior. At T-plus, 4 hours 18 minutes, Mission Control notified the crew that the S-4B evasive burn had begun. Apollo Control Houston, uh, 4 hours 18 minutes, a booster systems engineer uh, indicates he has uh, initiated the evasive burn. Uh, that's uh, 1 minute uh, 20 seconds in duration. We can uh, see her moving away now, Gordon, and uh, she's just slowly uh, picking up a little speed there. 
The way you tell it's moving is against the, the particles in the background. I don't think you can see those on TV, but it's, uh, it looks like there's a million stars out behind the S-4B as it moves off. All right, you, John. Uh, the evasive burn is complete now. It was a major moment in the flight, and while a national television audience was watching on the evening news, John Young took the time to thank the booster team involved with building of the Saturn V a fantastic machine that had gotten them to this critical point in their journey. Now, Roger, and as she moves out of sight, uh, the old Apollo 16 crew would really like to express their thanks and appreciation to the guys at the Marshall Space Flight Center that give such a phenomenal ride, not to mention the Boeing Company on the first stage, North American on the second, MACDAC on the third, IBM on the IU. It was superb all the way. Okay, John, I'll speak for them. Thank you. Eight minutes later, Mission Control sent a command to the S-4B, causing it to dump all of its leftover fuel. This resulted in a propulsive reaction that sent the rocket tumbling off on a long solar orbit trajectory that would keep it far out of Apollo 16's way. The crew could clearly delineate its motion away from them by judging how it moved through different stars and the separation debris. All during the docking sequence and extraction, the crew continued to observe those mysterious particles. More and more were escaping from the lunar module. Now they could see an area on the side of the limb that was tattered and shredded and which was continually spitting particles off into space. The surface looked like shredded wheat. So much surface damage to the lunar module was not anticipated or desired and there was a lengthy discussion about it with mission control. John and Charlie felt reasonably confident that it wasn't going to affect how their landing machine flew, but they couldn't be sure. Then, at 7 hours 46 minutes into the flight, Houston called in with some more bad news. 16 Houston, on this uh, panel that you were looking at that the particles are coming off of, uh, that's not a hard piece of structure there. That's just a thermal protection uh, covering a standoff that's over the top of the RCSA system tanks and all the RCSA tanks are under there and what we're concerned about is that one of those tanks may be leaking and affecting that uh, thermal protection blanket on top. Okay. With this rather grim news, the crew's hearts sank at the possibility of an aborted mission. Were they jinxed too? All three astronauts had worked on the ill-fated Apollo 13 flight. Of course, that flight didn't land on the moon. And now, it looked like they weren't going to land either. To compound the bad news, 30 minutes later, John Young noticed a new problem. Clear, Roger. 16, you're loud and clear. Help me. Roger, I see something coming off the lunar module now that I, I haven't been up here looking out the window. I just noticed it's uh, 
It's uh, it looks like it's coming out of a a vent or something. Uh, and from looking at it through the window, it is uh, beneath this uh, sheet that sort of shredded off, and it's right between the uh, that spiral uh, antenna and uh, above the uh, big uh, apps tank. But this is uh, definitely coming out in a stream right now, looks like, and uh, not very many particles, but they're just uh, they're being propelled away from the lunar module at some velocity. Okay, Roger. Let's, let's get in there and take a look at it. Hey, Roger, I think we're going to have to get into LIM and take a look at the RCS systems gauges to tell what's going on here. The only way to tell for sure what, if anything, was leaking was to go ahead and enter the lunar module. The crew was scheduled for a rest period at this point, but Houston agreed that they should open the hatches and float over into the lunar module to determine the nature of the problem. Everyone was pretty certain that it was a fuel leak. So the astronauts unstowed the proper checklist for the activation and checkout of the lunar module and removed the hatches and the docking mechanisms. John and Charlie floated into the lunar module, quickly taking their stations and began to power up the limb. Within a few minutes, they were able to determine that it was not an ascent or descent stage propellant leak. In fact... None of the liquids on board were indicating any leakage problems. So now, there was something that was leaving the lunar module, which was apparently of no consequence. But nobody knew what it was. The crew reported this back to Mission Control. Okay, uh, Houston, uh, you should have the data now, uh, according to our checklist. Roger. Uh, we have the data from the lunar module now. We're looking at it, and uh, we'll get an evaluation. RCS, uh, quad A and B meter, take a look at them. Stand by one. We're, we're, we're looking at all the data now, I think. Okay, fine. Our, uh, our system A, RCS meter, which is not powered, is at 92% uh, quantity, and B is uh, a little over 100 Roger. Our LEM systems engineers uh, report uh, from the data we've seen so far that everything looks good, looks normal, no evidence of any uh, uh, propellant leaks or pressure, uh, pressurization leaks. And uh, we're standing by now for television from the command module. Based on what we're looking at, the system A pressures look okay. We don't see any problem with the tanks. Okay, but that sure is something strange coming out of that. I never saw anything like that on uh, LEM-4. I mean, I'm not normally a rabble rouser. It's, it's just ain't something, something funny going on there. If it had been a fuel leak, Apollo 16 would have been a total failure. With great relief, the crew shut down all the lunar module systems. Though the crew's spirits soared when they discovered it wasn't a serious problem, 
The mystery wasn't solved until four days later when they landed on the moon. As Charlie Duke walked around the side of the lunar module, he looked up and noticed that some of the paint had been peeling off. What they had seen during transpositioning were little flecks of paint floating off into space, and when the sun hit them, it gave the impression of ice crystals. After power down, the crew reinstalled the hatches and mechanisms and floated back to their couches. Then they finally had the opportunity to remove their suits. Even in zero-g, the suits were very uncomfortable. Then it was time for their first meal. To Charlie Duke, the food was actually quite tasty. To give Apollo 16 some variety, NASA had some normal, everyday-type foods, such as slices of bread, peanut butter, and jelly. They also had meat patties, but the problem with them was that the meat was cold and there was no way to heat it. The doctors were concerned about the astronauts' intake of calories and liquids, so after each meal, they were required to log everything they ate or didn't eat and to inform mission control. With this information, the doctors charted their energy level. The crew had now been up for 21 hours, and everyone was tired. The astronauts put the spacecraft into sleep configuration. This gave Houston control of the onboard computer and enabled them to do a few other things while the astronauts slept. In the event of an emergency, one of the crew slept with a communications helmet on so that they could hear the warning systems on board and hear Houston call to alert them to an impending problem. John and Ken went to sleep quickly, but Charlie did not. He eventually took a sleeping pill because he couldn't get his mind off the events of the day. But before he fell asleep, he opened some letters that he had found in his flight plan earlier in the day. They had been placed there by the backup crew and were from his family. The boys had each drawn a crayon picture of the Apollo spacecraft and written on the back, We love you, and have a safe trip home. Charlie almost choked up when he saw the simply drawn pictures and scribbled words. Charlie's wife, Dottie, sent a card, which pictured a sunset over the ocean with the words, Tonight, wherever you are, my thoughts are of you. Good night, my love. Sleep warm. When you look out at the moon and stars, remember, we are looking at the same moon and stars and are close to you. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 357 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 16, TLI, Transposition, and the Lunar Module Fuel Leak? 
<laughs> Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released on February 18th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 183 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, had a few afterthoughts on this episode. I am delighted to report next week we will be celebrating the 8th anniversary of my two-year podcast. The actual 8th anniversary is February 13th. It's been a wonderful experience, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. We will do something special on the episode to honor this occasion. Eight continuous years on the podcast. Not to brag or anything, but that's pretty good. Mrs. SRH has the new donor page ready. So if you could check it out and make sure your name is at the right level and you have the correct number of emojis, we would appreciate it. Now, if there's a problem, don't hesitate to let us know. Contact us at mike at spacerockethistory.com. Now, regarding the episode, Charlie Duke had a great description of sunrise in space after TLI. I just couldn't resist putting that in there. I hope you enjoyed it. It wasn't too much, but I hope hope you enjoyed it because I, I really liked it. As I read these books by the astronauts and compare them with the NASA flight plan transcripts, sometimes the authors are a little off. Sometimes they put in comments that are not actually in the transcript, but are quoted as being there. Now, it's not just Duke and Young. It's every author I have read. Most of the time... They get it exactly right, but sometimes they seem to be just basing it on their memories without checking, or they could be taking artistic license. So far, in this series, John Young is the more precise. I'll give you an example. During the docking, Young said the velocity while docking was only 0.1 feet per second, while Duke said it was one foot per second, and very jolting on impact. Now, that is a factor of 10 times difference. Based on NASA transcript and commentary, I tend to believe Young was correct. But, you know, you're never really certain about these things. So I kind of just hedged it and said between 0.1 and 1 foot per second velocity. Now that is a very small discrepancy, but I use it to illustrate my point. In history, you always have to consider the source and look for cooperation if you can find it. Okay, and finally, the supposed fuel leak. Now that was a near disaster. It looked like a fuel leak on the limb to everybody, which would have meant an abort and maybe not even an Apollo 17. What a relief to discover it wasn't a leak. Now, sit back and imagine the range of emotions J. 
John and Charlie went through this first day of the mission. From joy to despair and back to joy several times. What an amazing first day of this Apollo 16 mission. I am looking forward to the rest of it. Oh, also some of you have actually written in (laughs) on the secret project that I don't want to discuss. (laughs) We are... Definitely progressing by working from morning to bedtime, but there is still too much risk of failure to make it public. But I want to keep you informed a little bit, so I'll give you a clue. (laughs) And to some of you, this is just going to be nothing, okay? I mean, some of you, who cares what this is? So this is to the people that actually write email to me <laughs> and ask about it. So uh, I'll give you a clue. It involves a huge change in our personal life, and we are taking a big risk. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions and increases, and I would like to thank Michael S. from the U.K. who donated at the starship level and earned a shooting star emoji. Stephen G. from Minnesota donated at the Orion level and earned a shooting star emoji. Andy S. from the Czech Republic donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned a rocket emoji. Rich M. from Virginia donated at the Apollo level and earned a Nova emoji. James M. from Scotland donated at the Apollo level and earned a Galaxy emoji. Niles L. donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. James P. from Texas donated at the Apollo level and earned a Galaxy emoji. Stefan F. from Germany donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Scott S. from Pennsylvania donated at the Apollo level. Stephen M. from California donated at the Mercury level and earned an alien emoji. John H. from North Carolina donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Ian M. from Canada donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Francis M. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Martin C. donated at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. Ralph P. donated at the Sputnik level and earned a rocket emoji. Rick W. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Alan J. from Malaysia pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Matt M. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level, and Lynn C. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Thank you so much. Our total Patreon donors are at 254. Uh Uh-oh, that's a drop of six from last month. I hope we get some of these back. A lot of times these things happen at the end of the month when the month changes and People's credit cards expire and uh, they need to be uh, the number changed or renewed or whatever. So if that's one of you, we'd appreciate it if you'd check on it. Our total donors for 2021 are at 296 and our goal is 500 by the end of the year. 
If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruptions, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of a Space Rocket History magnet or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or the SRH archive magnet or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Jim Early. Jim Early, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we will get this out to you. Thank you to all 296 of you who contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kratz, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, Apollo 16 Flight Journal, Apollo 16 Mission Report, Apollo 16 Timeline, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that's it for this week, folks. I will try to have episode 358 posted by February 18th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.